Welcome to Star Trek and the Jews, the monthly podcast that uses Star Trek to boldly explore the worlds of Jews and Judaism. I'm Josh. And I'm Chava. And this month we're talking about Season 1 of Star Trek Lower Decks. But first, we have some really big news. Actually, you have some really big news. I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> I am now a doctor. Hooray! Woohoo! <laughs> um, Congratulations! Thank you. It was such an emotional experience, like the day that I defended. After my defense, I don't know if I should admit this to everyone that listens to this, but like the second I closed my defense, I just burst into tears. <laughs> it oh was just God. like so many emotions at once. Like I was happy and I was like relieved and I was sad a little about leaving and like it was just a lot. I totally get it. I mean, I think like the whole time I've known you, you've been working towards your PhD thesis, um, yep. which is not that long. You haven't been in your thesis forever. We just haven't known each other that long. <laughs> and it's it's such an incredible accomplishment. Thank you. I'm happy. How does it feel to just be like, done? It doesn't totally feel like I am. I still have like the research weight on me. Hmm. There are a couple ideas that I still have. And I'm actually working with my supervisor still this month. But... It feels more like a job now than, like, a job combined with, like, really big anxiety. <laughs> Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about your uh, your thesis? Sure. I did my PhD in the chemistry department, focusing on uh, the theory of chemical physics and how energy is transported between molecules and other nanoscale particles. It's mostly pen and paper math, where I, like, am trying to come up with equations that describe specific behaviors that that we might observe in experiments of energy transfer or even charge transfer. Yeah, I, I don't have a good elevator one. <laughs> I saw your public presentation and you were talking about like some of the, the quantum chemistry experiments and I actually had an idea for you guys. Ooh. I thought you should bounce an inverse tachyon beam off the deflector dish and I don't know, see what happens. You're right. That is exactly what we should do. I should have uh, I should have done that in my PhD. Now I don't have any time left. I've learned so much science in these many years watching Star Trek. <laughs> 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 well, Mazel Tov. I'm very proud of you. Thank you. Should we talk Star Trek Lower Decks? Yeah. How did you like it, Josh? I really liked it. Okay, I really but liked you, it a lot. Is, there, is it, like, possible for you to dislike Star Trek? Yes, it is possible, and I think I've shared my negative opinions of Enterprise. I think it is my favorite of the new Treks, like, above Discovery, Picard, and the Kelvin movies. I, I think it's my favorite of those. Wow. Above Picard, even. Like, I thought Picard was good. I, I think I might put Picard at the bottom of that list, but... Ooh, oh, now really? I'm getting controversial. Yeah. I would put Discovery. But yeah, no, Lower Decks was was adorable. I just thought it was the best idea. There were so many things about it that were just smartly done. Like, I thought it had really good economy of story. Like, the whole season is, I don't know, 220 minutes. It's like barely longer than the motion picture. It's barely longer than the introducing the Enterprise sequence in the motion picture. <laughs> Just, like, the joke density of it, but, like, the ability to have, a like, a tight Star Trek story in, in almost every episode. And I liked the way it introduced us to the world. Like, one of the things that, like, bummed me out with both Picard and Discovery was they set up these big kind of mystery box season premieres where there was so much we didn't know. And then if you found out what the answer to the mystery was and it wasn't so fulfilling, it was a letdown. But the first two seasons of Lower Decks are like, episode one, these are the main characters and aren't they adorable? <laughs> and this is the premise of the show. Episode two kind of shows you like around the ship. I think by going to like Little Ryza, Little Kronos, and so on, it was a little bit of, for Trekkies, it was like, here's what we can do with the world. And for non-Trekkies, it was like, here's a little bit of what the world looks like. So I, I was really impressed with that. I really loved how they were really able to like walk that fine line of like the perspective. Mm -hmm. In other Star Trek episodes, whenever like the Star Trek stuff happens, where they're dealing with whatever they're dealing with, um, it always feels much more 
Like, it feels like you're part of the decision-making, because, like, you're following the captain, you're following the, like, commanding officers. But here, it's like, it's almost like that is just a little bit background, but it's still very much part of the episode whenever stuff happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I just thought that they did that so well, which is, is kind of how you feel when you're, like, in the backseat of a project. I appreciate the setting, too. I like that Discovery has been trying new things, but I grew up with 90s-era Trek, and it's very familiar for me, and it's it's comfortable to see them pull into Space Dock and flash back to, like, a Pasteur-type ship around Deep Space Nine and see those blue and gray uniforms, <laughs> and I, I love the setting, and, and I thought that it, totally. it, it suited it well. I felt the season rewarded me for my love of Star Trek, but I also watched the show with my wife, who she's seen Deep Space Nine and has like some next-gen familiarity and the new series, but she loved it, and and she liked it a lot more than Discovery or or Picard also. Yeah, I do think that it, it sort of brings Star Trek into the modern era of television in a way that's unlike how Picard and... Discovery do it, where like we're used to these super intense storylines that wrap up in ten episodes that are overarching. And there, there's like some mystery, like you were saying. Here, the '90s Star Trek doesn't fit in with like how we do TV now. No, they really made that happen, and it's true. It was quite rewarding. And I think that you could only do that in something that's a little bit satirical. Otherwise, you're just stuck in neutral. And that's why... Have you seen the Orville ever? No. The Orville is... It's like Seth MacFarlane's sci-fi show. I think it's on Hulu now. It's a very obvious knockoff of Next Gen, but with like Family Guy style dumb humor in it. It's like fine, but it's not... It, it doesn't really say anything new. It, it's a lot of, like, dumb jokes. Lower Decks, at its core, it, like, stayed true to what Star Trek is. Mm-hmm. The characters have that love and excitement. The stories, like, they explore the relationships and we're going to talk about more, like, really, like, interesting social and science fiction issues. And it has that that heart. And without that heart, it, it wouldn't have worked. Yeah, I totally agree. I thought the weakest spots were when it kind of forgot that. The one much ado about Boimler, that's where Boimler is sort of like phased out. That episode didn't quite work for me because of course Starfleet doesn't, doesn't like ship off the freaks to some prison ship. Like that's not going to happen. Envoys, that was the one with Fletcher who was like the screw up ensign. That was an okay one, but it, it was sort of like, you know, having like a a huge screw up who's not just has problems, but is like being an ass about it mm-hmm. wasn't like very Starfleety. But those were like rare weak spots in a show that I that I felt was otherwise like pretty consistently strong. Yeah. So we picked three that I think we can pick apart in a little bit more detail. Temporal edict, moist vessel, and no small parts. Why don't we start with temporal edict? This episode is all about work life balance. Boimler lets slip that everyone puts in buffer time when they tell their commander how long it's going to take them to do a specific task. Freeman goes crazy trying to get everybody to report every task that they do in a certain time frame. And this is also the one where, you know, Mariner goes down to the crystal planet and they accidentally give them a log instead of a crystal and chaos ensues. And that's all because they're too stressed out to be able to get them the right gift. Buffer time has a has a long history in Star Trek, goes like way back to Scotty saying he quadruples all of his work estimates for Kirk so that he'll always seem like a miracle <laughs> worker. This episode felt like really, really prescient in 2020. Yeah, it really connected with, I think, how most millennials feel about their jobs. There's so much pressure across every sector to keep labor costs down that we just see like industries finding new and better ways to extract every ounce of human labor they can. There's some like pretty dystopian (laughs) versions of it. Like Amazon uses like physical movement tracking inside their warehouses to see exactly where all their warehouse staff are at every moment and how fast they walk a package from one side to the other. 
But also in the world of intellectual workers, you have companies like I think there's one called Hubstaff. They sell monitoring software basically built for the pandemic so that employers can watch their employees work from their homes to make sure they're you know, not buffering between tasks or things like that. <laughs> I think it's unbelievable, though, being able to, like you mentioned, Amazon, there are a lot of companies that are like that, right, where they have borderline slave labor in impoverished countries. And the truth is, though, is it's extremely expensive to not buy from those things because of the way like our economy has revolved around that. Like, we're always expecting everything to be fast, replaceable, and that doesn't go hand in hand with buffer time. I was thinking a lot too about how the way technology has changed so that in a lot of jobs, work never ends. And I remember like I articled for our American listeners, articling is something that Canadian lawyers do for a year between law school and being called to the bar, sort of like an internship. And I had articled at a large national firm and it was, it was insanity. Like I was working till 11 p.m. almost every night. But even when I was off, I was never really off because I knew that if something went wrong, the Blackberry was right there. And I'm dating myself a little bit by saying it was a Blackberry, but it was right there. And I was never really off for that whole period. And I actually saw that France in 2017 passed laws saying that medium and large companies were not allowed to send after hour emails or rather they weren't allowed to expect employees to check or respond to them. It's actually a huge problem in academia, particularly because it's got that uh, flexible atmosphere. You can come and go as you want. Often experiments are like many hours, if not days long. That's the culture. It's not uncommon to get emails at all hours of the night. We did have a professor visit our department once, and she said that she actually writes in her signatures not to expect an email from her after 5 p.m., which is a very unusual thing in a professor. It's like often they don't even look at their emails until <laughs> after 5 p.m. Right. It seems like a constant job where you really don't have any time off. I think it's problematic in the academic world because everyone's always pushed. So this episode is like pretty obviously connected to something that we hold near and dear to our hearts in Judaism, and that's Shabbat. Mm -hmm. I think it's indispensable. And this this episode really illustrates that. Yeah, I mean, it's like a central premise in Judaism, this separation between like the periods of labor and the periods of not labor. <laughs> Yeah, like even God separates them. So this month for Reb Alert, we spoke with Tiffany Schlein. And Tiffany wrote a book called 24-6. Although she's a secular Jew, she wrote about the ways she incorporated Shabbat into her life and her family's life in really transformational ways. And how that has changed so many things about her and how she lives her life and how she thinks. So let's go to Reb Alert now. Belay that order, number one. Red Alert. Tiffany Schlein is an Emmy-nominated filmmaker and creator of the Webby Awards. She's the author of 24-6, giving up screens one day a week to get more time, creativity, and connection, which was just recently re-released in paperback. Tiffany, welcome to Star Trek and the Jews. It's great to be here. So this month, Chava and I watched a Star Trek episode, a really recent one, called Temporal Edict. And I think at its core, this episode was about the value of separating labor from leisure time. So tell us about this concept that really much of your book is about the technology Shabbat and your journey adopting it as a practice in your life. First of all, it's great to be here. I grew up in Northern California as a cultural Jew, atheist parents, and never grew up with Shabbat. As I got older, I met my husband. He is Jewish. He had lived in Israel to study robotics, and he was really fascinated that the whole country would shut down. So when I met him, and again, this is like 1997 before the iPhone, and I think that part is key, he would attempt to do a full day of Shabbat, no working. And, you know, he was a young professor at the time, and I was always thought it was super sexy that he's like, I don't work on Shabbat. <laughs> but then the iPhones came into the picture, and everyone got addicted, and suddenly everyone was kind of quasi-working, quasi-being present. 
never really present anywhere. And I really started to hate the way I was feeling. I just felt like I was never present. I was just always multitasking and I was never really anywhere. I had this very dramatic couple weeks of my life where my father died of brain cancer and, and Ken's and my daughter was born. Wow. And I just felt like it was one of those yeah life moments that was like, how are you living your life? You could die any day. And what values do you want to impart to your child? It was like all those big questions were kind of staring right at me. We're part of this organization called Reboot. And it was the very first year we were doing National Day of Unplugging. And that was like one ceremonial day, rethinking Shabbat, no screens. And we did that almost 11 years ago. And we were the only ones that just never stopped. It just felt so good. We did it for that one annual day. And we're like, this is exactly what we need. We need to bring back Shabbat and in a full way into our lives. And a full day, you know, full day. I would say 99% of the Jews I know do the dinner occasionally for Shabbat, which is lovely and wonderful and social, but it doesn't extend beyond that. Uh, and the couple of people I knew that that did do a full day of Shabbat were Orthodox Jews, and that felt just so far away from the way I was Jewish. I didn't think it was available to me. But then suddenly when we did this no-screen Shabbat, I just started more and more seeing the power of it. After years of doing it, I thought, I have to write a book and share this idea in a non-religious way, because I think that really stopped me from engaging with it before. And now, you know, we have a 17-year-old daughter, we have an 11-year-old daughter. Literally, it's the favorite day of the week for my family. It's the day we feel most connected. It's the day I feel most creative. I feel the most productive afterwards. And so the benefits just kept getting exponentially better. And eventually I was like, uh, as I was nearing 10 years of doing it, I thought I have to write a book about it. And I called the book specifically 24-6 because I really wanted to strip away the religion from the brilliant idea of a day of rest. And then of course I do go into my thoughts about being Jewish about it and a lot of the philosophy and the Jewish ideas around it, but ideas around time and creativity and neuroscience and really going deep and wide on what does rest mean in, in modern society. So I actually grew up modern Orthodox. So I kept Shabbat throughout my childhood and into my teenage years. Mm. And something that I really miss the most about keeping Shabbat is the informality that it kind of creates with your friends. Mm. Since it's often a time that you spend with people, but you can't really call or text in advance, at least like I would often show up unannounced to my friend's house and certainly vice versa, that would happen. And mm. it was always welcomed uh, since we all knew that no one is actually busy. What is the main thing that you realized you really missed? Um, huh. And then you appreciate all the more so when incorporating the tech Shabbat. I love the way you call it about the informality. If you read about Shabbat, it's about a day unlike all others. And Abraham Heschel talks about a palace in time. And it does really feel like a day completely different. I love the social part of Shabbat. During the pandemic, we've been doing it at a distance, but we still have family and friends over outside. Friday sets so very social and very, you know, and I should say when all screens are away, the conversation flows in such mm -hmm. a better way. People laugh more. They're just more engaged. I'm sure people don't even remember the last time they had a conversation without the phone in their hand. And it's a different experience because you're not expecting to be interrupted. And you don't have a device to look at when you're slightly not like a hundred, you know, if you want to take a break, yeah. it's so disengaging. Like any and once one person does it, <laughs> yeah, any silence. Once once person does it, it's like yawning. Everyone does it, and then everyone's disengaged, and it takes a while to get back into that flow. So that's the social part. But Saturday, which is what I think you're talking about, I love the. In, it's, I've never used the way informality, but it's a beautiful way to put it because the whole day just has a different rhythm to it. Like I feel like I think a lot better. I usually wake up early and do some writing. And we actually don't make a lot of plans on Saturday. Um, you know, we have done it with two of our kids in soccer and, you know, had to coordinate that. But mostly it's a family day. So I guess if you have kids, like for us, it's like, you know, we're with the whole world on our screens and school and work the other six days. But this is one day to just actually be informal with ourselves. There's no schedule. We all do things we wish we had more time to do. So we're like, hanging out and that's very informal like there's not an agenda and time feels very luxurious and yeah. maybe that's what you're also speaking about Definitely. is that you're not in a rush your time it feels like the longest day but in the best way not like longest day bad but like wow this day feels so deep and luxurious is the way I always think of it I do all these things I don't do the other six days I mean I read in a completely different way I play games with my kids we usually go out into nature we usually cook a wonderful meal we nap, 
as long as we do nothing. And that's very different than the other six days where there's like so much to produce and achieve and be and be there and mm. get on that Zoom call and whatever. It's like there's none of that. And it's very liberating. Yeah. I love that Heschel is sort of a touchstone in the book. And actually, just since the pandemic started, I've been trying to learn some Heschel. Oh, great. He's, you know, he's amazing. And you use this quote of his uh, in the book, labor is a craft, but perfect rest is an art. Mm. How do you get to that state of rest? And how do you find that being in a state of rest, hopefully for, for one day a week, affects the other six days of the week? Mm. I think getting in a state of rest is turning off the screens. I mean, I really think that people are so scared to turn them off, which I think is really deep. I do know what I think it's about, but I have no issue with it. And, you know, it's like a muscle. I do it every week. And my kids, you know, when you do something every week, that's the beauty of it. It's like a practice. You're like, oh, this is my day with no screens. And it doesn't feel like you're missing out. In fact, it feels like you suddenly aren't missing anything. Whereas I think the screens in the majority of the time make you feel like you're missing out of something an event or this or that, you know, but the news emails, but when you, when you're like, Oh, I'm turning it off for 24 hours, you suddenly are grateful for all that's in front of you and that you're not missing out. So I think turning off the screens is such a fundamental part of rest in our modern society. So that's number one. I mean, I have a whole chapter on just like the physiology and the research around, if you take a full day of rest, you're going to be more productive. Like I wish people looked at rest itself as a technology because like, Technology is the thing that makes you more efficient and productive. But if you looked at a true day of rest, no screens, no input, you are going to be able to do such better output. Like I can see my work got so much richer when I started doing this. And I'm a big writer, you know, journaler, and all of my best ideas hands down come to me on Saturday. And there's a lot of neuroscience research behind this that you need to allow your mind periods of time where there's no input, no podcast coming in, no email, no text, no nothing. So you can process what you've already received in there. You know, the concept of daydream, just the concept that you have your best ideas when you're in the shower or doing the dishes or on a walk. That's all about there's no new input. You're just Mm -hmm. keeping your mind, your body busy in some simple task. And you are letting your mind, I like to think of it as like off leash. Mm -hmm. And off leash, your mind's going to come up with his best ideas. So I look at it as like my magic day of like ideas, of reflection, of perspective, and appreciation. I don't feel like, you know, when I'm online, which I love being online, obviously, but I feel like hungry for more, like I'm never satiated. And more news, more emails, more notifications, more this, more that, more, 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 more. I turn it off and I immediately switch into this state from wanting more to just appreciating what I have. And I... Every week, I just, I feel like this big sigh of relief in my soul for turning off that switch, which of course the internet is designed to feed you to make you never leave the screen. I mean, the business model and documentary social dilemma kind of outlines this, but it is designed to make you feel that way. That was not the original intention of the web. Um, when I started the Webby Awards, it was a very different, it was like a nonprofit public utility back then. And then the corporations came in like, how can we make the most money? And It was a lot about, you know, keeping you glued to the screen. And there's a lot of different strategies to do that. So Endless scrolling. (laughs) Yeah, you never get to the bottom of the internet. And there's no cues for it to end. Like when you read a book or a chapter, there's just, you're just on it forever. If you want to be, I feel like when I turn it off, it kind of ends the chapter of that week. Like, okay, I'm turning off the world for a day. I'm going to re- get re in touch with myself, with my husband, with my kids, with my animals. <laughs> we have a dog and a cat. And just kind of be in my own mind and home and body and soul, which it's a really deep feeling. I, it's big. I'm just curious do you still do chores and do you still listen to music? Other things that I mm-hmm. kind of think are sort of work, work but like, or they're work in Shabbat sense. Mm-hmm. But like to me, listening to music, I don't usually think of as. Yeah, well, we um, sometimes will like organize the art closet because we want to do an art project. Well, actually, at the beginning of the pandemic, when our house was like a disaster, we did do some cleaning on that day. But in general, no. If you enjoy doing that, I mean, it's a day filled with joy, whatever you enjoy doing. Some people enjoy, they never have the time to organize that closet and that brings them joy. But we generally don't do a lot of stuff like that. At the beginning of our tech Shabbats, you know, like we're 11 years in now, probably like the first four or five years, we got a record player and we would go to the record store with our kids, which is super fun and teach them about vinyl. 
Then Alexa came along and somehow we felt like, okay, Alexa isn't a screen because it's not taking us down the rabbit hole of a screen, but it just says like play Billie Holiday and it would just play. So we let that in. Um, but it's generally not a day of like news or podcasts mm-hmm. or letting a lot of things in besides music. Yeah. And we, we also play music. So that's usually a day we play. Right. It's very inspiring. I'm like really tempted to try this out. <laughs> well, it's interesting. You grew up a modern Orthodox Jew. I mean, this is what's so fascinating to me is that I'm in Northern California. There's not many Orthodox Jews here. Most of the Jews I know, just no, I mean, Shabbat would never mean a full day to them. And here it's like this idea that's lasted 3000 years and no one does it anymore. And we've never needed it more. Yeah. It's most exciting to me with the book because, you know, the book's been out for a year now and so many people have read it. And it's really exciting when Jews read it and they kind of rediscover this thing that's from our people. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the greatest gift of the Jews. And most people I feel like are just doing a slight I mean, I feel like the Shabbat dinner is literally the entrance to the much bigger kahuna of the power of it, which is the next day. So Friday sure. night's very social, connected, but it's that, what you talk about, that inform, this like temple and time on Saturday that is so beautiful. It's just where I have my best thoughts. It's like, really, there's nothing to do. I do really miss that. Yeah. Could you do it again? Do you ever go without your screen? Uh, I'll go without my phone, but I often watch TV. But it's a good idea. You know, some people say, well, can we still watch TV on Friday night? I mean, for me, it's just about no outside stimulation. I mean, it's like, no, because when you turn on the TV, you're going to like see some news flash as you're turning the channel or you need your phone for Netflix and stuff like that, too. Like, I mean, but reading is okay. For some reason, you know, reading is like you're very contained in that experience. And I know if you're an Orthodox Jew, like I have a friend who doesn't, you know, you're not allowed to do any writing if you practiced it that way. Mm -hmm. But for me, it's my favorite day to write. So I also talk about in the book, like, how do you redefine it to you? I mean, take the core ideas of Shabbat, which are about presence and appreciation and study and family and friends. And and then how does it apply in your life? But I do think people are just so they don't even realize how much the screens are taking them out of being present. Mm-hmm. Your book was written uh, in the before times. I know, I know. <laughs> it's hard to believe how much the world has changed since March and and relationships and screens are so intertwined. And like, on the one hand, like Zoom and Microsoft Teams literally haunt my dreams. And yet I really cherish that like every day my toddler gets on FaceTime with my bubby. Yeah. Who's luckily, but sadly been cloistered through the whole pandemic. Mm-hmm. So how do you think Tech Shabbat is different today? The couple times we've broken Tech Shabbat was for like a Zoom bat mitzvah or a Zoom shiva that happened on Saturdays. And of course, we're going to go to that. But generally, well, first, I would say that our 17-year-old daughter, at the beginning of the lockdown, like when we could barely leave the house in March or April, she looked at me and said, our Tech Shabbats are the only days I don't feel like we're in quarantine. And it was such a profound thing because we already aren't on screens and you do feel like protected from the news and from the world for this one day. So I would say they've become 10 times more important since the pandemic, but people that are connecting with their parents are, you know, we have a landline. I do talk to my mom on my landline. And if there's an emergency, that's how people reach us. But if you really, that's the way that you're connecting, I would say make your Shabbat Zoom with your Bubby, with your family, be the last thing you do on Friday night and the first thing you do on Saturday when you go back online. So it's like mm-hmm. sandwiched in that love, but you still instill in your kids and in your family as a value. There's one day we're going to just be with us. Because I'll tell you something, it's a very profound thing to say parenting is all modeling behavior. And a lot of parents are trying to get their kids off devices and they're on the devices Mm -hmm. and their kids are just watching them. And if you're like, as a family, we value one day, we're just with each other and we're focused on each other and doing things. It's not like every second, like when we had small kids, we would tag teams so that each of us got kind of a break to do our own thing too. It's much easier for me to do a straight text about them the other six days, like in my book, 24, six, I go through all these other like interventions. I do the other six days, but it's much more difficult because there's screens everywhere. But on this Friday to Saturday night, the screens are all put away. You don't see them. They're in a drawer. You know, it's like out of sight, out of mind. I was curious if you drive. We do. Yeah. We're not doing it in a, we really don't follow the 
strict Shomer Shabbos Orthodox, you know, for us, um, but we don't drive a lot. Like it's not a day that we're doing very much unless we're driving to a hike somewhere or something. Mm -hmm. It's not like off the table. Like I said, we do right. You're not supposed to create if you were following it to the very religious end. For me, it's like, again, thinking, what does rest mean to you? What does it mean to you in the 21st century? In the book, I talk a lot about how do you make it work for you? And if you have kids, and maybe that's the one exception where your kids do something with the bubby. But I mean, I have found what the power of Shabbat is, the strictness is liberating. Like instead of making it all slippery, it's like, no, we just don't do screens for a day. And it is very freeing within that boundary. Tiffany, thank you so much for joining us at Star Trek and the Jews. Uh, again, the book is uh, 24-6, giving up screens one day a week to get more time, creativity, and connection. Uh, it was so great to chat with you. Oh, it was so great to chat with you both. Thanks so much for coming. Today's episode is sponsored by the Jewish Museum of Maryland. Now open at the Jewish Museum of Maryland, Jews in space, members of the tribe in orbit. From ancient astronomers to today's space scientists and astronauts, Jewish people have been interested in looking up. Outer space has also inspired Jewish artists, writers, comedians, and thinkers to boldly imagine realms beyond our Earth. Visit the museum or enjoy an out-of-this-world virtual tour by registering or learning more at jewishmuseummd.org. That's jewishmuseummd.org. So Dr. Adam and I have discussed several times uh, since that interview that we should implement this Tech Shabbat. Really? Yeah, totally. We both think it would be great. We're very into it. And somehow it just doesn't happen, though. (laughs) (laughs) Just kind of. Well, uh, let me ask you then. So like you you grew up modern Orthodox and and kept Shabbat pretty strictly as a kid. What What does Shabbat look like for you right now? I really feel that my phone is like the most, both like a distraction in a good way and also the most stressful part of my life. <laughs> like mm. you're always getting, to me, emails are the most important things that I get. I just always feel like I might get, like you were mentioning before about your Blackberry, I might get a message that I have to do something or like someone's asking me a question. So I feel like for me, Shabbat now would really mean a separation from the phone and that was something that hmm. I think is really emphasized by Tiffany Shalane's book. What What have you done as Shabbat in your life? Have you observed it or in, in what way? So um, definitely we have a Shabbat observance. Like we never miss Friday night dinner and it's like very ritualized. My, my toddler is like obsessed with it and she'll go around yelling. Shabbat. So cute. And like cover her eyes and do the candle motion. Definitely for us, like Friday night is the Shabbat thing. I do try to like not do any work related to like my job from Friday night to Saturday night. In non-pandemic times, I really enjoyed going to synagogue Saturday morning. And like we wouldn't go every week, but we'd probably go once or twice a month. And I mean, before the pandemic, I also lived like a few blocks away from the synagogue, so it was a lot easier to do. And I am hopeful something like that resumes again, too. Uh, I want the kid to be like a shul brat who who runs around the hall like she owns the place. Oh, that was me. (laughs) I guess I have some problems with like the traditional observance of Shabbat. Like when I think about the Talmud enumerates the 39 labors, like the ones that I think it's it's like they're said to be the ones involved in the the construction of the uh, Mishkan, the temporary temple before the temple. I'm an intellectual worker, and like my job is that I gather information and think critically about it with a team, and then make recommendations. And there's nothing in the 39 enumerated labors uh, that like intrinsically stops me from doing that. And and in fact, because of the nature of what I do. I actually like work out of a lot of print materials. Like I could, I could do most of my job without technically violating Shabbat. And yet there's things that are like prohibited work that I really like to do on Shabbat. And I enjoyed to like go work in the yard or bake or do arts and crafts with my kid or things like that. Right. Those are like leisure activities. <laughs> I wouldn't find it relaxing to have to pre-rip my toilet paper so as to not rip it on Shabbos either. Okay, no one does that. Like, no one actually No. 
<laughs> I mean, maybe I never did that, but <laughs> actually, we just use uh, Kleenex. Well, that's really bad for your plumbing. Before we move on, any other Jewy notes on Temporal Edict? I have one, but it's actually my Avi Coleman. Oh, okay. Um, I've got a couple quick hits. Okay. <laughs> I think the Galrakians blow a shofar before they attack the landing party. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, they do, yeah. It's not Jewish, but but just like generally about the episode, I loved how they used the first officer ransom here because like if it were any other Star Trek show, he'd be the star, and that's like sort of the magic of lower decks, and mm-hmm. and yet in like cartoon logic, you expect him to fail and you expect him to like be the villain, but it turns out he like really is a hero who like refuses to put Mariner in danger and like Kirk punches his way out of the situation only after his diplomacy failed. <laughs> he was such a great critique of like the Kirk Riker kind of this like dated Star Trek portrayal of, of like the masculinity in the hero. And, uh, he's, he's a great character. Yeah, I, I agree. And I also just, I thought it was so funny, the jokes that they did with uh, with Mariner there, where she was like, actually, I'm kind of into it. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, I, I got to love at the very end, the call out to, here actually we're, we're treading into our sister podcast, Star Trek and the Gentiles, but uh, <laughs> Chief Miles Edward O'Brien. <laughs> Star Trek and the Gentiles. Before we move on, a quick note of housekeeping. Very recently, I appeared on the podcast Enterprising Individuals to talk about, well, Star Trek and the Jews. It was a lot of fun. It's a great show, uh, both for like episode by episode in-depth analysis of Trek, but also they have really deep and interesting conversations about like all things science, philosophy, and economics, and like really thinking about Star Trek as a place and the philosophical and other implications of it. So if that's your way that you like to nerd out, which it might be if you're listening to this, go check it out. It's called Enterprising Individuals. Did you have any housekeeping? Oh, yes, I do, actually. So several of my friends have now asked me, so is Josh going to start calling you Dr. Chava now? Because we oh. always call Dr. Adam Dr. Adam. If requested. <laughs> I mean, I just feel like it should be both or neither. You know what I'm saying? Oh, okay. I'm just kidding. It's fine. <laughs> no, you're right. I, I think from now on, doctor. Okay, Dr. Chava. No, I actually don't want you to call me that, because that's actually weird. Okay. I'm glad we lampshaded this, though. Yes. I'm just saying that, like, I was asked the question, so uh, we should expect that someone might ask. I won't call you doctor. I'll just say Chava, PhD every time from now on. Okay, so Chava, PhD Moist Vessel? Okay, yeah, so Moist Vessel. This is the one where they're hauling a ship full of inorganic goo material that terraforms and then takes over the ship. Tendi is also dealing with this like Ascension guy and like kind of messes with his spirituality. Quite the title for an episode. Ew. (laughs) (laughs) It's a familiar premise. It it makes me think of other very moist Star Trek episodes like Genesis. That's the one where like Worf turns into a monster and eats people. Masks, the one where Brent Spiner does impressions and uh, Macrocosm, which is where Janeway is like an action hero fighting those like tripod bug things that are biting people's necks. That's a great one. Oh, um, yeah. But I thought this episode was really good for like how it showed how flexible animation is and like the scale of that ship and transforming the Cerritos. It's true. They did really display a lot of their animation abilities. Like- this episode has some pretty explicit religious content. Uh, we see O'Connor and he's trying to ascend to become a being of pure energy, which is something we've like seen from time to time in Star Trek. It happens to like Wesley and in um, Transfigurations Charlie X way back in the original series. So this is like a thing you can do. O'Connor's in his quarters with like a whole group of people and they do something that I'm not totally okay with, which is like, there's a little appropriation of some 
of some like Indian religions sort of fused together in a weird way. Like he's saying Om, which has yeah. like a religious significance to Hinduism and Buddhism and others. Sand mandalas also have a significance in Hinduism and Buddhism and Jainism, but it's sort of like made generic y and new agey, I think, without like a lot of attention to what those rituals actually are. It really reminded me more of like Bajoran customs. Like that's actually what I thought of. Yeah, I, I totally see what you mean. Sure. And then, of course, like Tendi screws it up, and her her approach is to try to mix and match prayers from different cultures to increase his chance of ascending. So, saying some some Latin spells and getting him to uh, center his chakra, offering to reiki him. <laughs> he does eventually, after they go through this harrowing experience ascend and have some crazy experience. I gotta say, I love the line, uh, drop and roll, drop back into the physical and roll as he, as he goes plaid and turns into a being of pure energy. So I actually thought that the Ascension thing was like, kind of not Jewish in a lot of ways. He really sort of seemed like a martyr because like pain was involved, I thought. Hmm. That was like a strange addition to that whole process, which I don't think that there's ever glory in pain so much. Like, kind of Jesus-y, in my opinion. Oh, yeah, because he he didn't ascend in his chanting and meditating. He ascended when he sacrificed himself to save Tendi. Yeah, exact. But maybe you see it differently. Yeah, so Ascension actually has, like, some really deep Jewish roots to it. I think the earliest mention is like way back in, in Genesis. Jacob, as he's preparing to confront Esau, he dreams of a ladder or a staircase that, um, mm. that ascends from the earth to the heaven and that angels ascend and descend on. Mm-hmm. But when he's meditating in his quarters, it really made me think of the Pardes. So this is like a really esoteric story from the Talmud. Pardes means orchard. And the story basically goes like this. Four sages enter the Pardes, the orchard, and they ascend to heaven by intensely meditating on the nature of the divine name. And they are Benazai, Benzoma, Rabbi Akiva, and Acher, the other one. Ben Azza gazed upon the divine presence and died. Benzoma gazed and lost his mind. Acher cut down the trees of the orchard, thus becoming a heretic. And Rabbi Akiva entered in peace and left in peace. The story comes in the middle of a part of the Talmud that is talking about um, what's later been called Merkaba mysticism, chariot mysticism. Mm-hmm. And this was like an early Jewish mystical tradition that revolved around like trying to understand certain prophetic visions, the vision in Ezekiel of like the divine chariot, and also one in, I think it's in Isaiah about the divine throne. The rabbis, they don't prohibit the study of this mysticism, but they're really cautious of it. And like, you know, they're warning that, you know, teaching it in the wrong way could make someone into a heretic or have like terrible physical things happen, like being surrounded in a ring of fire. And like this mystical tradition persists for centuries, but then seems to sort of die off. But I do think that like, because these stories stayed in the Talmud, they planted this seed in the Jewish imagination, the idea that the sages had esoteric wisdom that they were unwilling mm-hmm. to put in the written page because it was too dangerous. And that inspired, like, all kinds of future imaginations. And so when Kabbalah emerges, and when I say Kabbalah, I know some people will ascribe the word to, like, all Jewish mysticism, but I'm I'm really talking about a mystical school of thought that emerges in, like, 12th and 13th century Spain and France and is largely eventually written down in the Zohar, but probably was being transmitted orally for a few generations of rabbis before that. Like, that sort of is the essence of any mystical tradition, is that you're saying, I'm going to do away with, like, the proper rituals, and, like, saying, like, like, the mitzvot alone are the way to understand the universe, and instead try to have this, like, direct connection to the divine. Mm-hmm, which is super un-Jewish. As remember, we discussed that with uh, with Mimon, actually. I mean, it feels un-Jewish in some ways, and yet it's like 
so deeply rooted in our tradition that it that it mm-hmm. goes back to these the great medieval commentators and in the Talmud and with, you know, traces in, in the Tanakh. You know, we kind of see O'Connor enter the Pardes and, and he's not quite ready for it. He doesn't enter in peace and leave in peace. He's. <laughs> what does he say? He's like, the whole world rests on the back of a koala. Why is it staring at me? Why is it smiling? <laughs> Why is it smiling? Yeah. <laughs> the reason that we always invite, like, Eliyahu, for example, to the Passover Seder, I believe, is because he didn't actually die. That's the Midrash. He, like, ascended in a chariot to the heavens and so is still, like, around and has that everywhere at all times type of characteristic. I have one last Jewish note about this episode. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure that in the conference room, Mariner does a Larry David impression. (laughs) Pretty fascinating stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Which, in my view, makes Curb Your Enthusiasm canonical Star Trek. (laughs) Okay, should we talk no small parts? Yeah. This is the season finale. It starts with um with an exocomp joining the crew. The Cerritos is sent to go investigate another missing California-class starship. A giant enemy ship shows up, and sure enough, it's the Packleds. And they're not a joke anymore, not just looking for things to make us go, but like a super powerful enemy who destroyed this other starship. Mariner and Freeman have been outed as mother and daughter, and there's all kinds of uh, drama ensuing from that. Freeman lets Mariner sort of use her unconventional ways to to save the ship, and it looks like they're about to get out of it when when three more Packlet ships warp in. But then, who comes to save the day? It's uh, the USS Titan, and Captain Riker comes in and just absolutely devastates the Packlids. And the episode ends with Boimler getting the promotion he's always wanted uh, as a lieutenant aboard the Titan. And Mariner is sad that he leaves. Did you like this episode? I really liked this episode, yeah. I thought it was a lot of good things about it. The one thing I didn't like about it was actually its commentary, I thought, on religion. Like, at the beginning, they're visiting Beta 3... And they talk about the people of that civilization regressing because they're worshipping this computer, Landru. Mm-hmm. Like, I can see how that's objectively regressing. But also, like, I usually expect Star Trek to kind of be a bit more sensitive to the religions of different people, especially, like, how they treat the prophets, right? And also they, like, make a comment about how one of the guys makes a comment about how he just got himself, like, a new sieve for this ritual that they do. Like, it didn't really have anything to do with the fact that Landru was not actually a god. It was just, like, that was just what they like to do. Which I think is, uh, in a lot of ways, how like I feel about Judaism, and I think a lot of other people do. Just, like, stuff that they like to do, and it's not it's not primitive because it's a religious ritual. It's just, like, custom. I think that, like, the original series episode that visited that planet is from an era of the original series where they hadn't really thought through, like, the Prime Directive and all that stuff yet, because because Kirk just, like, lands on that planet and is like, your way of life is terrible, your god is a lie. Um, <laughs> That episode also is the inspiration for the the purge because of course mm-hmm. like when Kirk first lands there it's like the red night where they're all allowed to to murder each other and I think also Return of the Archons has been parodied in Mike McMahon's other show Rick and Morty they have an episode where they like land on a very similar planet to Beta 3 I don't know I see the criticism there that it's like too much interference but i also think in this case it was like a robot trying to assert its dominance over an impressionable people and get them to murder each other so maybe a little bit justified (laughs) (laughs) i gotta say like so many things about this episode just made my head explode because i've been waiting since i was 14 years old to see the titan on screen because it's such a tease and nemesis when they like describe it but don't show it and they did something really sweet here which was they took like the popular non-canon image of it um, that had been used in like video games and on the cover of novels and things like that and made it like the canon appearance of of the titan and i'm down for any series finale that that ends with with freaks warping in to save the day and so season three of discovery better end that way too because we're we're two for three this year already in uh in freaks saving the day in the finale 
He's uh, he's always around when you need him. What do you think of like the way this episode explores mother-daughter relationship? Something with which Star Trek hasn't done that much of. Like, Next Gen has Deanna and Loxana, and in Discovery, Michael Burnham has, I guess, her like four Ima Oat, her her four mothers, Gabrielle, Amanda, and the the two Georgios. But other than that, there's like not a lot of mother-daughter relationships in Star Trek. No, there isn't. I thought it was actually kind of realistic, like a lot of real interactions between her and her mom, thinking her mom's kind of old-fashioned or not cool, and her mom like being embarrassed by her and like certainly would have fired her, except that like she can't. Yeah, I really, I really liked that whole dynamic. What did you think? In some ways, I feel like Mariner has a lot of the characteristics that I think could have been better suited on Discovery. Cause in a lot of ways, like there, there are some similarities to Michael Burnham. Mm-hmm. Like she's been demoted. She has this fractured relationship with her mother and she bucks the rules. Totally. Yeah, I didn't notice that, but yeah, very. And yet, it doesn't do it with, like, all the over-dramatized everything. It's, like, a much more grounded... It's not, I pointed a phaser at your head and started a war. It's, like, you're a pain in the ass and stopping me from doing my job, and I don't understand you kind of thing. It's, like, much more of a mother-daughter interaction rather than, like, employer, which is what uh, she wants it to be, but can't really get it to be not a lot of classic jewish texts on mother-daughter relationships are there (laughs) i think that would uh that would require passing the bechdel test right i think the only part of the tanakh that passes the bechdel test is ruth which which is sort of a mother-daughter relationship mother-in-law but i don't really think has much in common with with mariner and freeman (laughs) (laughs) no this episode made me think about resurgent anti-Semitism and resurgent fascism in a kind of strange way. How so? Both with the Paclids and with Landru, the message was, and, and Mariner really says it at the end, like, just because you fixed it once a long time ago doesn't mean you can assume everything's okay. And, you know, just because something looks stupid doesn't mean it's not dangerous. Mm-hmm. Barry Wise, who I know is quite a controversial figure, but I, I really liked the the writing she's done on anti-Semitism recently, and I'm going to read a quote of hers. Anti-Semitism is a conspiracy theory. When you understand it as a conspiracy theory, you understand how it is constantly shape-shifting, how under communism the Jews are the arch-capitalist, how under Nazism we are the race contaminators. The reason that makes sense is that we come to stand for whatever a given society defines as its most vile and loathsome qualities. And that's why on the far right, we're the people who appear to be white but in fact are acting against the white race, while on the far left, we're a sort of handmaidens of white supremacy because we support Israel. That definition like really rings true to me in the way that anti-Semitism has reemerged in the West. Like, you know, in Charlottesville, when they were chanting, Jews will not replace us, they were not chanting that because they thought that they were going to be replaced by Jews. Like, they are alluding to a white supremacist conspiracy theory that is, and I'm just going to, like, put it out here. The conspiracy theory they believe is that there is a cabal of Jews led by billionaires like George Soros who want to dilute and replace the white race in America by promoting immigration of and intermarriage with black and brown people. And this is like the mechanism for the Jews to defeat the whites and whatever. (laughs) That conspiracy theory, like, it sounds so ludicrous to put it to it, but like, this is what they believe. Like the person who committed the massacre in the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh, that was his motivation. And he chose that synagogue because they had recently done an event with, with Hias, um, a Jewish settlement organization that, um, does like immigration support services in the US. You know, like people thought Mussolini and Hitler were ridiculous when they rose to power. And I'm not equating, although there are like, grounds to to um to like draw similarities but like we all thought that this orange dumbass reality tv star was joking around when he ran for president yeah just because something looks stupid doesn't mean that it can't be deadly and just because we beat fascism 75 years ago means that it's over and and we see that you know from hungary to Poland to Turkey to to Russia to the United States and and right here at home in Canada too like 
like right wing populist extremism is on the rise and we have to be alert and anti Semitism is on the rise with it and like often is, you know, an indicator, it's a warning bell of these systems. Yeah. It's like where the white supremacists are gonna go first. Mm-hmm. The Charlottesville thing really made me think that. Unfortunately, I do see it on the left as well. Absolutely, yeah. Super strongly with uh, thinking that that Jews control everything in the West related to Israel to protect the image of Israel, who is actually a like white supremacist nation. Which, not only is it anti-Semitic, but it's like not even factual about like the demographics of Israelis. Like, If you start picking apart those left-wing conspiracy theories, you see that underpinning them is a lot of the same BS underpinning the right-wing anti-Semitic conspiracy theories that, that at the end of it, when they, when they draw all the lines that they don't want to say out loud, it's gotta be a secret cabal of Jews controlling the media with their billionaire George Soros networks, or maybe on the left, they'll say Rothschild instead of George Soros because they, they pick which Jewish billionaire they hate. And, and they're dangerous and we see the effects of it. And like as someone who comes from the left, I see it as a vulnerability of the left. And when someone like Linda Sarsour or Ilhan Omar or Rashida Tlaib can embed themselves as like de facto leaders of the American left while also espousing like deeply anti-Semitic views. And I don't mean deeply anti-Israel. I, I mean deeply anti-Semitic and it, has nothing to do with the quality of their attacks on Israel. It is the way that they attack Jews in the United States. It's dangerous to Jews, but it's also dangerous to like the left as a movement. It, it is like this enormous blind spot vulnerability. For sure. Yeah, because it really, it really calls into question the morality behind the left. You know, there have been this whole flurry of think pieces out of the Jewish press lately attacking like intersectionalism and the new left. And, and I think like some of them have come from a really bad place. But I appreciate how Jews feel attacked and undefended and feel like you are the people calling out oppression everywhere, but accept as it applies to us and, and it like hurts. Yeah, it does. And I feel like as a left, a left wing Jew, I often will go into political conversations expecting to encounter deep anti-Semitism, but very subtly. Mm-hmm. Basically, I just sort of accept that. I'm, I'm like, I'll enter this sphere and I'm like, okay, we're, I'm going to experience some of this and it will, it will make me seem like an Israel defensive if I call it out. Yeah. It makes me uncomfortable. You know what? Something else that I've actually noticed on the left in, on Twitter, it's almost like there's resentment of the fact that like, actually the largest genocide of all time was the Jews. They're like, oh, that's so annoying. Like, I want to hate them, but like, I can't throw that fact under the rug. Yeah. It's super irritating. And it's like, they're always saying, oh, don't like, why are you complaining so much or whatever? Like, saying anti-Semitism isn't, isn't a real thing to be, to be worried about. When like, like less than a hundred years ago, like a third of the population or something was, Mm -hmm. I just, I find that that opinion is prevalent on the left. And it's like, just because, uh, there are powerful Jews and there are successful Jews does not mean that that wasn't the case before. And like, as much as you like to pretend that that's not true, many of the people that live in Israel also were refugees from Europe and that that's their heritage and not colonialist white supremacists. So, Chava, did you find an Afikoman? I did. And it was definitely in Temporal Edict, and it's related to Shabbat. But I just found that, like, that environment where they're all rushing around like crazy, it really reminded me of, like, those 10 to 15 minutes before Shabbat, where my dad's, like, stress cooking what we're going to eat as our (laughs) day of rest. And just, like, everyone's, like, running around trying to get their shower in. As the timer winds down. Yeah, as the timer winds down, you're like, oh, well, I still have 18 minutes. Like, I can still, uh, I can still take a shower. I have time, like, getting home from work early enough, um, cramming in, being able to cook, like, a relatively fancy meal. At the end of it, <laughs> my dad passes out every single week, uh, on the couch. And I remember I would too. And, and, uh, that's just, uh, it's like a super exhausting period, but you get to enjoy it at the end. And Temporal Edict really reminded me of that like environment, except that in Shabbat, you actually do have an end 
and and there's a point for relaxation. And in Temporal Edict, you just got a new task. Exactly. <laughs> I like that a lot. Okay, Josh, what's your afikomen? Okay, so my afikomen is like a Josh speech. <laughs> this episode is going to come out on Hanukkah, and actually on the anniversary of my bar mitzvah, so I have a very Ooh. short Devar Torah. Hanukkah means rededication, and I want to talk not about the story of Hanukkah, but the story of the story of Hanukkah and how it relates to Star Trek Lower Decks. So a quick refresher on the basics. You guys know the story. The Solicit Greeks and their Hellenistic Jewish supporters, they outlaw certain Jewish practices and defile the temple in Jerusalem. And then the Maccabees lead a revolt. They successfully recapture the temple and reestablish Jewish independence. The temple is rededicated and a jar with enough kosher oil to last for one day miraculously lasts for eight to light the menorah. Yes. But the story of the story of Hanukkah is a little bit tougher. The Maccabees become the Hasmonean dynasty who ruled as vassals for Rome. And for the Hasmoneans, Hanukkah was sort of an independence week celebrating the regime and its military power. Now, the early rabbis, they might have been ambivalent or even skeptical of Hanukkah. Unlike every other holiday, the mitzvot of Hanukkah are never systematically described in the Talmud. And the sages seem to view the Hasmoneans as like ungodly traitors who invited in the Romans, leading to a disaster. We know from Josephus that Hanukkah was already a beloved and widely observed holiday in the first century CE, and I do wonder if, like, but for this popular affection, the rabbis might have just done away with Hanukkah altogether. But it's hard to get rid of something that people really love, so instead they downplay its importance, they barely mention the military victories of the revolt, and instead they emphasize the miracles and the rededication of the temple. In the 20th century, different groups of Jews reimagined the story of Hanukkah to suit different purposes. For Zionists, Hanukkah was the story of national liberation, with our ancestors fighting bravely to reestablish Jewish sovereignty in our ancestral homeland. For traditionalists, Hanukkah was the story of anti-assimilation, with, quote, true practitioners of Judaism fighting against the assimilating <coughs> reforms of the Hellenizers, including Hellenized Jews. And for secular Jews in North America, Hanukkah was reimagined as a palatable alternative to the immense cultural force of Christmas, a joyous, gift-giving wintertime holiday that could maybe distract our kids away from Santa, at least for a generation or two. Fragmentary contemporaneous Greek records show a really different story that's unlike all of the stories I just told. They depict two families of prominent Jerusalem priests wrestling for control of the temple, that none was really more pious or more Hellenized than the other, and that ensuing strife created a proxy conflict between the Seleucid and Ptolemaic empires. The historian Michael Satlow points out that if in fact the Seleucids did try to ban Jewish practice, it would have been the first and only instance of any Hellenistic power anywhere in the world ever outlawing a local religious custom. So what do we do with all this? I hold all these truths together. Hanukkah is the story of Jewish infighting, and the story of Hasmonean military victories, and the story of miracles, and the story of rededicating the temple, and the story of reestablishing Jewish independence in Israel, and the story of resisting assimilation. And I dare say, for those of us with young children, it's even a story that defends against the pervasive hegemony of the Christmas industrial complex. All of these are the story of Hanukkah. They're all our story, and they're all authentically Jewish. So what does any of this have to do with Star Trek? <laughs> you know, on this podcast, we do something a little bit ridiculous, which is that we treat Star Trek as a sacred text, one that we interpret and reinterpret and revere and derive rituals from, and within which we search for moral and ethical truths. And Lower Decks is unlike all other Star Treks before it. And you could argue that it tells the story in a way that doesn't fit with the way stories of Star Trek have been told before. Its story is distinct and crafted to serve the needs of this moment in time. But I think that in all the ways that matter, it's still our Star Trek. It's still authentically Star Trek. It uses science fiction and the shared world of the Star Trek universe to tell great stories about the human condition. And in this pandemic winter... Star Trek Lower Decks brought me light. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah. 
Well, that's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening to Star Trek and the Jews. If you liked our show, think about if there's one specific friend you could share it with who might enjoy it. Our opening fanfare was arranged by Dr. Adam Snyderman. Thank you to our wonderful guest, Tiffany Schlain, author of 24-6, The Power of Unplugging One Day a Week. You can learn more about Tiffany by following her on Twitter at Tiffany Schlain, S-H-L-A-I-N. Your Hebrew School homework for next month is The Next Generation episode force of nature and star trek for the voyage home that's the one with the whales i'm so excited we'll see you next month do you know about this no i have no idea what you're talking about what is this Kapla Hava! <laughs> Mary Chifo here, aka Chancellor Lorel on Star Trek Discovery. Oh my god. Uh, we wanted to wish you a hearty congrats, a Kapla success uh, for submitting your PhD thesis <laughs> in quantum chemistry. Thank you, Josh, for booking this cameo, letting us know what the hell? that uh, Hava has done this amazing thing. We're very impressed. Very impressed. I'm extremely impressed with that feat. We need more intelligent women like you to, to do that sort of stuff. We could use you at the Empire. Okay, okay. Don't need to do the whole elevator pitch. <laughs> Josh oh has requested God. that we, uh, uh, Rel and I, uh, read Does Adam know uh, about this? a little uh, yeah, snippet, a little excerpt of your dissertation. Uh, so I think we're going to do that. And what we set up is that we have this really great ventriloquist uh, act where Lorel doesn't move her mouth and I move mine. And it's amazing. You know, it's, I sound just like her. Um, so that's what we're going to do. <clears throat> Harmonic systems satisfy the thermodynamic what uncertainty happening? even at strong coupling. We know a bit about coupling or uncoupling, am I right? In order to see violations, we have to depart from this limit. Instead of the infinite level manifold of the harmonic oscillator, Wait, we employ <laughs> engaging anharmonic effects and obtaining an integral over possible bath phonon energies that allows for non-Markovian behavior. Oh my God. We observe violations upon structuring the bath density, which predicts yes. the probability of transport. Transporter? Was that a transporter? <laughs> <laughs> the thermodynamic I'm uncertainty dying. relation can be violated by structuring the spectral density function of the thermal reservoirs. Oh my god. And there you have it. Thank you, Lorel. Thank you. That is highly impressive. I uh, couldn't even begin to uh, unpack all of that on my own. So the fact that you've written a whole thesis on that is just incredible and uh, it reminds me a lot of some of the some of the texts that some of us have to memorize i i got the i had more klingon i had to memorize less techno babble as we like to call it but uh i uh would be uh, quite excited to have to uh spew that out um on the show which would be very cool but yes seriously congrats um kapla again success <laughs> I am sure you'll have much of it uh, with the thesis. Go forth like the Klingon you are. Repeat after me, yes, or Lorel. Klingon, mach, tach, judge. We are Klingons. Klingon, mach, Let tach, it remain. Jazz. And truly, if you ever want to come and bring can't your even quantum pretend I'm gonna say that. to the Klingon Empire, you'd be really into it. Thank you, Lorel. She's very excited to find a, a fellow intelligent oh badass woman. Wait. As am I. So, what, what can I say? All right, that's it. I'll leave you be. Congratulations again. Wishing you all the success in the world. And I hope you stay safe and be well. And uh, yeah. Kabla! <laughs>